This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the second of three films we're going to cover for Black History Month and one of the celebrated Best Picture nominees from 1967, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Directed by Stanley Kramer, written by William Rose, and starring Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, and Katherine Hepburn. However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, we will be covering probably the most celebrated black comedy movie that I'm aware of, at least, that doesn't have Eddie Murphy in it. For our continuing Black History Month recognition, Friday, from 1995, directed by F. Gary Gray, written by Ice Cube and DJ Pooh, starring Ice Cube, Chris Tucker, and John Witherspoon. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can also still find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. Additionally, did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, we put links to take you right to either the notes for that specific episode or to the full ranked and graded list of movies we've covered so far? Just open up the episode, and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. Then, as we announced in the preview of Season 3 episode, we are taking the month of March this year to do another full trilogy, and you can help us decide. We have had a weekly Twitter poll up on our profile, at Gmode Podcast, to pick between four favorite franchises to cover this March. You can pick between the Jason Bourne Trilogy, the Austin Powers Trilogy, the Naked Gun Trilogy, or the Oceans Trilogy. If you don't have Twitter but would like to participate, write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com with your vote. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use, We would really appreciate it. And now we welcome back to the show our record six-time guest, Chris Duncan. Hi, everyone. So let's see here. You have been on Sleepless in Seattle. You were on the My Fair Lady episode with the rest of the Duncan clan. You were on Pretty Woman. Uh, I'm forgetting. What are some of the other ones that we did with you? Pillow Talk. Pillow Talk, yep. I forgot that one, which I I shouldn't have forgotten. I cited it as one of our uh, favorites for like first 100, I think two weeks ago. (laughs) Um, I can't remember anymore either, but I know that I have been. They've all been fun. So welcome back to the show, of course. Uh, For those of you that don't know, this is my mother and Dana's wife. But let's start out with this particular movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, 1967, where we often start this particular show. What is your relationship to this movie? Mom, let's start with you. Um, I don't have a particular relationship with this film. I've seen it now. I think this was the third or fourth time that I had viewed this film. I think the first time I saw it, Dad and I were probably just first married. Um, I might have seen it with my parents when I was younger, but I don't recall. Um, I think that 
this movie was filmed in the year of my birth. So I, I think that the mind frame uh, was still there as I was starting to grow up about all of these things that go on in this film and especially about the whole interracial thing. And I think that, um, I think it's, oh, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I think that's the best way that I can put it is that this happened as I was starting out and I know that that the the types of things that the characters are talking about in the film are the same types of things that my parents discussed as I was growing up. And so for that, I, it's relatable for me. I remember the time period where this was a big deal. I saw it uh, bits and pieces younger, watched it again later on, I think, as Chris said, was about the time we were first married. Then uh, I read a book on the making of the five best picture films of 1967 and how they were a transition from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. And so I made a purpose of having the family all watch the five. The one, we got four of them done. We never got to Dr. Doolittle. But, and that'll uh, be a question of whether we actually do that one on the show. The rest of them are all classics, and probably we will be covering. We've already covered one in the heat of the night, which was the best picture winner from this year. But The Graduate by Mike Nichols, as well as Bonnie and Clyde, I think those are going to definitely be coming up on the show at some point. Yeah, uh, Dr. Doolittle, I don't know, didn't age the best. But um, anyway. Well, especially since we've had two remakes that were both bad. (laughs) Yeah. I remember at least, I think it was in the last probably 12 years that I saw this film. I can't remember if it was while I was still in college or if it was just after. I know that I crossed this off of my general list, the one that I've been working on as a project for probably about six, seven years at this point to watch every AFI Top 100 film from both the 1998 and 10th Anniversary Edition list from 2007, as well as every Best Picture nominee. And this was on that list. I think it was on the original 1998 list, which we'll discuss here in a minute, as like one in the mid-90s or something like that. So it was kind of on the tail end. I don't think it ended up making the 2007 list. But this is a fairly accessible film, well, at least from a personal standpoint, and This is at the height of Poitier's star charisma. He won the uh, Best Actor Oscar in 1963 for Lilies of the Field, but this was his third big major hit of this year, including In the Heat of the Night, which he uh, starred in as Virgil Tibbs, the infamous detective, and also won the Best Picture Award for that. So to have two Best Picture nominees in the same year is quite extraordinary for just about anybody, let alone one particular Well, at this time, for an African-American actor who, by happenstance, also happened to be the first African-American actor to win a Oscar. So then, you both are obviously older than I. You would have to be. But, Mom, you mentioned before this this movie came out the year you were born. And, Dad, you were four. But I have to imagine that despite this being right around the time, and we'll get to that here in the did you know in the recognition sections, that this is the same year as Loving v. Virginia that basically overruled all of the interracial marriage laws, it still had to be a topic of primary culture and discussion through the 70s and 80s. 
what do you remember, I guess, about this topic more broadly? Uh, one of the interesting parts is that Tilly from the film is played by Isabel Sanford. And uh, she went on to play uh, Mrs. or uh, Louise Jefferson on the TV show, The Jeffersons, originally the neighbor to Archie and Edith Bunker. And her next door neighbors were an interracial couple. And I'm drawing a blank as to the female, but she actually um, was uh, the mother for uh, Lenny Kravitz. Yeah, and, um, and that's in the mid-70s. So we're talking about uh, seven to ten years, and having an interracial couple, and even at that point in time, was still a big deal. Just wasn't something that was done a lot and discussed a lot. And, um, I mean, there was a lot of prejudice that still existed. Uh, well, there's still a lot of prejudice now, so like... Yeah, it's a little more... Uh, it, they... Uh, they try to hide it a little better than they used to. But, I mean, I know for a fact Bill Cosby, for other reasons, but he did I Spy with uh, or with um, uh, Bob Culp. And uh, that was really the first time that it was a uh, white-black relationship-type television show. And I just remember even at that time in the in that 70s, I had G.I. Joe's, the 12-inch, not the little, little ones that... Uh, G.I. Joe should be ticked off that he got shrunk. But I had a black G.I. Joe and a, uh, and a white G.I. Joe as a team because I thought that was cool. And my dad uh, had quite the uh, difficulty with my uh, choice of G.I. Joes. As he got older, he got much more... Um, Mild? Yes, and much uh, more tolerant of things. But uh, quite frankly, I always used to joke that when I was a kid or a small kid, my dad was Archie Bunker. Quite a reputation to live up to. As a young girl, I had a friend whose parents had emigrated from India, and I spent a lot of time in her home, and my parents never really had a problem. I never really thought anything about it. She was just my friend from school, and her culture was unique, and I would go over there and obviously you know, their cooking is different. So when you walk in the house, the smell of the home is different because of how they cook. And her mother was wonderful. And I, you know, was privileged to be able to, um, to eat dinner with them often and play with them. And unfortunately, the girl got ill. She ended up passing away, actually. But we were really good friends. And I spent hours there. And I loved the inter the, the culture. Um, I think that was my first real experience with a different culture. As I grew up and we moved out of that area, we lived at, in a subdivision. And in that subdivision, we had a black couple come and live in um, in our subdivision, not very far. And I babysat for them. And I think it was the first time that my parents had really experienced, you know, the black culture in a homey way. I mean, they would invite us over to their home. They would, like I said, I babysat for them. They came over and ate by us. They were a teacher and a, I can't remember exactly what her husband did. I think he was an engineer of some kind, but he worked for the DOT. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, they were wonderful. And, um, and I think that it gave my parents a totally different perspective on black people on, you know, at, of course, at that time, they were 
colored people, but, but I, you know, as a young person, even though my parents grew up completely differently than my grandparents and I, I never felt that they discouraged me from learning about anything. And so I guess I feel in some ways I relate to um, Joey, the character in the movie. I never saw that as a problem. I never saw anybody other than a person. And I think there's a really good quote in here where John is talking with his dad and he says, you know, you think of yourself as a black man. I think of myself as a man. And I think there's a generation gap with my parents and how I feel about things compared to how they saw things because they lived this time period where, you know, even at the time where this was taking place, there were still 17 states that had still outlawed interracial marriage. So, yeah, during the filming of the movie, that was true. Unfortunately, it was slightly not the case by the time that the film was actually released. So that was a little dated even in that year. True, but the prejudices were still there. Correct. I I still don't think that, and it's been said many times, the Supreme Court can overrule something, but they can't change people's hearts. Yeah, exactly. And part of the thing is, is and and let's just talking about the reality, where she grew up as an adolescent lacrosse, Mm -hmm. there were no minorities or very few minorities. So it's a little different. I grew up in a city that was about one-third African-American. And so I had kids from kindergarten on up that were in my class that were African-American. It tended to be grouped around certain grade schools, which had its own problems later on, (laughs) as they tried to figure out ways to avoid having one school 80% white and the other school 80% black because it was a neighborhood school. But uh, so it, it, it changes. And I think part of it is just the fact that you didn't have, in a lot of rural areas of America, opportunities to see black people, to interrelate with black people. And it became, it was kind of um, unique to a lot of rural people. And I'm sorry, I probably should have put the disclaimer at the top like we did last week that we are three white people who have all come from at least a middle class background or have raised ourselves into that and have some privilege as a result of it. It's possible that we probably should have tried to at least have somebody that was multiracial onto the show to try and discuss this, but we are coming at it from the perspective of where we've come from and our backgrounds, which we're limited to. Whether or not we're going to get this correct or not, I don't know. But again, I feel the discussion is important enough to have to at least try and find some appreciation and meaning in these types of movies because they were made to be appealing and entertaining, yet artful and raise discussion. And I think we only honor these films by having those discussions. So... With that, uh, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the film. Dad, let's start with a plot summary. Do you have one for us? I do. After having met and fallen in love in Hawaii, Dr. John Prentice, Sidney Poitier, and Joanne Drayton, Catherine Houghton, return and seek the approval of their marriage by Joanne's progressive parents, Matt Drayton, Spencer Tracy, and Christina Drayton, Catherine Hepburn. As the shock matriculates through the Drayton household, 
The question remains whether acceptance or rejection will follow. Thank you. Cast for this movie, produced and directed by Stanley Kramer, original screenplay by William Rose, Spencer Tracy as Matt Drayton, Sidney Poitier as Dr. John Wade Prentice, Catherine Hepburn as Christina Drayton, Catherine Houghton as Joanna Joey Drayton, Cecil Kellaway as Monsignor Mike Ryan, Bay Richards, or B, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, as Mrs. Mary Prentice, Roy E. Glenn Sr. as Mr. John Prentice Sr., Isabel Sanford as Tilly. Recognition for this movie, the film was nominated for Best Picture, Director for Stanley Kramer, Actor for Spencer Tracy, Supporting Actress for B. Richards, Supporting Actor for Kellaway, Film Editing, Art Direction, and Original Score, and it won for Best Actress for Katherine Hepburn and Best Original Screenplay for William Rose. It was on AFI's following list, 100 Years 100 Movies in 1998 as its number 99 film, 100 Years 100 Passions as the number 58 film. It was nominated for this quote for 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes, You think of yourself as a colored man, I think of myself as a man. 100 Years 100 Cheers is the number 35 movie. And 100 Years 100 Movies, the 10th anniversary edition from 2007, it was a nominated film. In 2017, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? The film was one of the few films of the time to depict an interracial marriage in a positive light, as interracial marriage historically had been illegal in many states of the United States. It was still illegal in 17 states until June 12, 1967, six months before the film was released, roughly two weeks after Tracy filmed his final scene and two days after his death. Anti-miscegenation laws were struck down by the Supreme Court in Loving v. Virginia. Did you know? The film was the ninth and final on-screen pairing of Tracy and Hepburn. Tracy was very ill during filming but insisted on continuing. Filming of his role was completed just 17 days before Tracy's death in June 1967. Hepburn never saw the completed film, saying that the memories it would evoke of her of Tracy were too emotional. The film was released in December 1967, six months after his death. Did you know? The filming schedule was altered to accommodate Tracy's failing health. All of Tracy's scenes and shots were filmed between 9 a.m. and noon of each day to give him adequate time to rest for the remainder of the day. For example... Most of Tracy's dialogue scenes were filmed in such a way that during close-ups on other characters, a stand-in was substituted for him. Tracy's failing health was more serious than most people working on the set were aware. According to Poitier, the illness of Spencer Tracy dominated everything. I knew his health was very poor and many of the people who knew what the situation was didn't believe we'd finish the film. That is, that Tracy would be able to finish the film. Those of us who were close knew it was worse than they thought. Kate brought him to and from the set. She worked with him on his lines. She made sure with Kramer that his hours were right for what he could do, and what he couldn't do was different each day. There were days where he couldn't do anything, but also there were days when he was great, and I got the chance to know what it was like working with Tracy. Did you know? Hepburn significantly helped cast her niece, Catherine Houghton, for the role of Joey Drayton. Concerning this, Hepburn stated, there was a lovely part for Kathy, my niece. She would play Spencer's and my daughter. I love that. She's beautiful, and she definitely had a family resemblance. It was my idea. Did you know? 
The original version of the film that played in theaters in 1968 contained a moment in which Tilly responds to the question, guess who's coming to dinner now, with the sarcastic one-liner, the Reverend Martin Luther King? After King's assassination on April 4th, 1968, this line was removed from the film, so by August 1968, almost all theaters showing of the film had this line omitted. As early as 1969, the line was restored to many but not all prints, and the line was preserved in the VHS and DVD versions of the film as well. Let's take a quick break, and we will be right back. All right, what is this movie about? What would be the elevator pitch? Dad, let's start with you. It's it's about pure prejudice. Kramer and Rose wrote the screenplay specifically making Prentice to be the absolutely ideal, perfect candidate to be a son-in-law. A doctor who's uh, philanthropic, he's going to Africa, he gets written up in major magazines, he's got a Harvard education, uh, Johns Hopkins, he even leaves change in the in on the desk to cover his long-distance call. So the ultimate thing that comes down to is prejudice and the color of his skin, and that's what the film's about, is to take it in its purest sense of, is this man worthy of marrying my daughter? Yes or no, because of the color of his skin. Mom, what did you think? Well, I agree with him. I think that they made Poitier's character so perfect that on every level, any parent would be proud to have that kind of son-in-law. And the only problem was the color of his skin. I, I think that your dad is right. I think that the whole interracial marriage and what that meant and how people were to accept or not accept it you know, is all based on this guy was the perfect man for their daughter and everything that they had taught her. And she was happy. And how do you say no to that? And how do you be a good parent at the same time, especially when, you know, she brings up in there that she was doing everything that they taught her how to do. And he was, you know, dad was behaving badly. He's basically being a hypocrite. And I think it's the blend. I think you see their whole attitudes change during the film as they turn over all the stuff in their mind about, well, he's a really good person. His parents are good, you know, people. And okay, well, we'll get through whatever we have to get through because they're happy. I can give it to you shorter. What we have here is a pigmentation problem. <laughs> yes, right. So I actually thought in watching this that this was actually a different or slightly altered version of Romeo and Juliet. You have two star-crossed lovers that can't be together for some reason, and it has to do with their families, but also the world at large. And so it's just a slight variation. And that's kind of what I thought in putting together mine. Two star-crossed lovers, despite the complications of their union, seek approval from their parents to be together. Okay. So best performance then? I went with Spencer Tracy. I think he was the most complicated, deep-in-thought character. I thought he had the broadest amount of work to do over the course of the film. And then you want to describe the fact that he was dying quite literally uh, while this was going on. 
and he still put together what I would say is probably the performance of the film, I think that has to be recognized. I, I agree. Just the, uh, the, the final monologue where he's talking to them and explaining his thoughts and his feelings and what was going through his mind, that scene alone was like a master class in acting. Tracy always had a knack for being able to say lines and to present lines without it seeming like he was acting. He was very natural in his presentation. And even in this point, he was very natural in his presentation. And you can see a thoughtful, intelligent father having to try to work through this in his own mind and come to conclusions and understand where, why he was behaving and why he was thinking the way he was. So I thought uh, he had the greatest potential for growth. He had the greatest opportunity for redemption. And uh, I think that uh, he was by far uh, the best performance of the film. And I think it's one of the better performances of his career. His ability to deliver a monologue, I don't think is questioned particularly given that I think it was only a few years before that that he did Judgment at Nuremberg, which I think he has several rather large and important monologues to that film. So I would recommend at some point that everybody go watch that one. I think we're going to eventually cover that on this program. But that being said, I actually thought that his quieter moments or the smaller moments were the more important ones. Him in contemplation outside on the terrorists. Him in the car trying to order ice cream and being completely confused. (laughs) And to me, one of the best moments that he has is actually the moment that he meets John for the first time. You see his mind working, having to put this all together and figure out exactly what is going on because Tilly's warned him, but he hasn't put it all together yet. And it's the realization and him circling back and going back into the house and then coming back out and then okay, I got to piece this together and this together. Oh, here's where the problem is. And his realization of all of those things. Thanks for stealing my thunder. (laughs) Well, go ahead then. No, that was okay. But I think that was the most poignant of the beginning of the film was that whole scene where he is turning everything over in his mind because I too had him with the best performance. And, And as he walks back, as things are all of a sudden clicking and he's going, okay, what's going on here? And he says that, you know, and then because they're all trying to tell him that he needs to stay because there's something wrong and he just wasn't getting it. And then all of a sudden, and then the enormity of the situation hits him. And of course, the film takes off from there. So um, I, I too think that that is a great scene. Even in his conversation with Poitier, when he comes in and he tells him that without their blessing, he won't get married. I thought that um, he handled that just like a father who was facing some court kind of crisis would would handle that. And it just seems so natural for him. So um, I guess I don't know that much about his personal history, but I think any parent who is faced with a, a crisis or some type of situation regarding their child and you know somebody comes in and says, I'm not going to do this without your permission and everything that goes on in their mind. I just, you could just see it on his face and how he was processing everything. It was wonderful. It was so natural. So since we were unanimous in our best performance, 
Dad, what did you have for best secondary? I'm hoping we have some slight deviations on this category. Uh, and before I do that, I just wanted to do a shout out because, of course, little state pride Spencer Tracy is a Wisconsin or was a Wisconsinite. He uh, grew up in Milwaukee. I thought it was Madison, but all right. Nope, Milwaukee. Uh, in fact, he and Pat O'Brien, the, another famous actor of that era, grew up four blocks apart in Milwaukee. Anyway, my secondary performance was uh, Stanley Kramer. Stanley Kramer was the con- or had the concept of this film. He wanted to challenge this concept and, and this issue. He approached uh, Hepburn and Tracy about doing it before he even had a script, and they agreed to do the film. He oversaw Rose and worked with Rose on the script. And I think it's very underappreciated, the pacing. There's not a moment that this film really drags. You could lose interest if it drags, but he just seemed to have a pace. And you could see the pace was uh, set in a way that was the equivalent of Tracy as Matt uh, Drayton coming to terms and thinking through and and understanding what's going on and dealing with his own prejudices, his own apprehensions. And I think Kramer did a phenomenal job of directing the film to set the pace along those lines. Noted that this film was nominated for film editing uh, as far as pacing. And I find that often is the biggest contribution that editing has is momentum and pace within a film. Mom, what did you have for best secondary? I actually have Katherine Houghton in there. Um, I think because she was a newer actress, um, that this was a a big chance for her, a big role for her. And um, I thought she did an amazing job of convincing us that she was totally not seeing a problem with what was going on there. (laughs) And, um, I I think that she didn't have a lot of opportunity necessarily to connect with the audience, but I think that her total colorblind, her total attitude toward what was going on was magnificent. And for a young actress in one of her, her biggest roles, I'm sure, because I don't think I've seen her since, in much, but um, was was terrific. I thought she acted it well. Of course, she had a good role model in her aunt. And yeah, so I, there was a part of this article that I was reading today said that um, Catherine Hepburn said that the part of her daughter was a difficult one. A young, unknown actress needs more opportunity to win the sympathies of the audience. Otherwise, too much depends on her youth, innocence, and beauty. She had one good speech to win the audience, but it was cut. So there, she had something that that would have given her greater probably character depth, and they had to take it out for timing or whatever. But um, I I thought as a young actress, she did a phenomenal job. Well, I nominated her for most charismatic, but I think that she didn't really need to do a whole lot in this film because her specific role was to be bright, young, naive sprightly, energetic, and I think there's a reason that they probably cut it besides just timing. If you got too much into the depth of that character, and she provided what I thought was a necessary quality to the role, is, like I said, almost an irrational naivete that she was so young and energetic 
that she looked past all of the barriers and the potential problems in a way that none of the rest of the characters seem to do. And you have to for the way that that role is specifically written. So I don't know if that's a quality of her necessarily, or if that's a quality of the writing or a combination of both, which it most likely is. But her ability to project into that role that she was never going to see the problem, she only saw the upside, is not one that any of the other characters were able to convey. They only saw the problems. And I think that's why eventually somebody like Catherine Hepburn comes around to her side of things, knowing that she's only going to ever see the upside of what was going to happen. And that's why she was never going to give up on this potential arrangement. My best secondary, though, I went with Poitier. He's the reason that we're doing this specific film. He unfortunately passed away not too long ago, but I think he was, what, 97, 98? Uh, Maybe even slightly younger than that, but he was in his 90s and led a very long and industrious career within Hollywood. But in this particular role, and I don't know if I would say it's his best role by far, but you can see the strength, the conviction the purpose, the drive that are all there behind every role that he seems to ever have. He's always a very convicted character who seems to revel in pointing out his blackness, but for the benefit of his community in a way that I don't think you could have gotten too many other major Hollywood stars to be capable of doing. He was probably the right fit at the right time to be a big Hollywood star that was bridging the gap between basically breaking the color barrier of Hollywood. So by that extension, again, I don't know if he has as much to do, but he's probably the most, the second most used person within the course of the film. It's between him and Tracy as far as the amount of lines and screen time, I would say. But he's certainly a lead role, and this movie is him on the poster as opposed to just about anybody else. And I think it's effective. He is the exact right person to play this exact role at this time. Most charismatic then, Ma, who did you have down? I have Cecil Kellaway for his portrayal of Monsignor Ryan. I just love the interplay with the family. I love the scene um, in the dressing room. You just wish you could have seen the wrestling match. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But um, I I just think that the, you know, the two guys had a really good relationship. I just think he brought a fresh perspective. I appreciated the fact that being a priest with, with all of their convictions, the priest didn't see a problem with what was going on there. I thought that was really interesting and very well written. And so I just, I had fun. Every time he came onto the screen, he made me laugh. And I just thought he just brought a lot of life to the film. You just like kindly old priests. (laughs) Who drink scotch. (laughs) Who drink scotch, yeah, instead of Irish whiskey, right? Anyway, Dad, who did you have? I had Poitier. I I thought that this was a, a role that was more about his charisma and his, I mean, in order for the part to, or the script to work, you had to have a guy that was that bright, that intelligent, that likable. Likable, yeah. I mean, there was nothing, you know, and that's where his charisma came through. I've seen uh, enough of his other stuff to know that 
he didn't have to do a lot of heavy acting in this. This was more, there was some, but he's had other roles that I thought were much more demanding. Um, so that's why, but I went with the er, charismatic for that reason, just because I think that's where, uh, that's what really played in this film and what made it work was just his general likability and the fact that um, I believe he was the top box office in 67 uh, or 68. I believe you're correct, yes. He drew people into the, into the theaters, uh, regardless of what he was doing. And you do raise an interesting point that I'll just kind of continue on just to make it abundantly clear that his likability was necessary because as an audience, you have to not only like him, but be rooting for this marriage to potentially work. If this guy's a jerk or he's just off-putting immediately, then you will never as an audience be convinced that he's the right guy to marry the daughter and thus the rest of the setup that you have to uh, be rooting for the parents to come around to the thing that you've already realized yourself in the audience will never be the case. And that's the emotional pull of this movie. All right, so best scene then. I have, let's see here, nine nominees. We'll go through these and you can let me know if I miss any. The Draytons meet Dr. Prentice, Oregon Boysenberry, Christina fires Hillary, Tilly has her say, Monsignor challenges Matt to wrestling. The Prentices arrive. What happens to old men? I don't owe you. And I've got something to say. Any I missed. There's the earlier conversation between the Monsignor and Matt that I like too, where he basically kind of, he's like realizing Matt's got a problem or is apprehensive and he calls him out and basically laughs at him about being basically a hypocrite, you know, this liberal lion. But I think you could take that scene and draw a direct contra- or connection to this scene later in the bedroom where he threatens or uh, suggests they enter into a wrestling match. I think it's almost the same scene, but separated by other scenes in the movie. Ma, any I miss? The first scene that we were talking about earlier where um, Matt comes in and actually meets Prentice and, and they're having coffee and sandwiches and he, you know, turns around and goes, what's going on here? So I have that in there. I also have the conversation between the two moms. I thought that mm. was really important um, yes, toward the end that. of the film uh, where, where they both come around thinking that, you know, they talk about their children, they talk about their ideals, they talk about the world in which they're going to live in and the changes that they see occurring and come to the realization that, you know, you have to let the young people live their lives. And I thought that was just really a strong scene for me because maybe I'm a mom, you know, I'm a mom. And so I see it that way. And that's a kind of conversation I could see myself having. All right. So dad, what do you think was the best scene? My favorite scene was uh, Monsignor and Matt because I just love anything where somebody's hypocrisy is uh, is called. And you're jumping the gun. Yeah. Well, I'm having a hard time with the best scene because I think the best scene ultimately is also my most indelible, and that's Tracy's monologue at the end. I think that's just a phenomenal thing. As I said earlier, it's a master's class in acting. And I believe it was one take. 
which was just absolutely nobody believed he could do it. Yeah, but he also had a lot of stage experience. The way that this movie plays out, it very well could be a stage play because most of the action is revolving in very few rooms. Yeah. So if you have that experience doing that in a one take like that, I mean, other than the fact that you have to uh, memorize the lines, which isn't normal for movie actors other than a few at a time, isn't necessarily as big a deal. But granted, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Ma, what did you think was the best scene? I love, I think it's a foreshadowing scene. I love where Christina comes and uh, Hillary is standing in her front lobby and wants all of the juicy gossip and she escorts her out to the car and she fires her in such a way that she's telling her that it doesn't matter what you think. You don't need to be talking about this. We're going to be making our own family decisions here. Goodbye. I just thought that that was really interesting because I felt right at that moment, she had already made up her mind what she was going to do. And that was to support her daughter. And she didn't need other people already talking about the problem. And obviously, um, from the very beginning at the first scene, when they walk into the gallery, Hillary already had a problem with what was going on there and what she saw. And Christina was not going to allow that problem to exist. And so she got rid of it for her. And um, I just thought that was a really powerful scene. Well, I'll just put it to you this way. You are a parent as well as a business owner. And if you had a (laughs) longtime employee that was basically your number two, that was going to raise a fuss over who I chose to marry, would that person still be employed very much longer? Uh, No, it's not their decision at all. And I would not want somebody in my employee who didn't appreciate or, you know, approve or embrace what my family uh, stood for. And I think that's the shocking part of this scene is, is that they do set up Hillary as being essentially the number two and the person who takes over the day-to-day operations of the gallery. And that this has been a long-term person in the life of the family that, you're discarding because of her prejudice and you're just stopping it right at the root. For me though, the best scene is actually what happens to old men. I think that's the most emotional scene of the entire movie when Mrs. Prentice and Mr. Drayton are having their conversation out on the terrace. To me, that is a recognition and that's what really starts to move his heart for lack of a better term and where he needs to be in this film. It's only through the gentle touch and emotional ploy that a mother can have that he really starts to think about it in a different way beyond the problems of what was going on. And I think that conversation is really how we get to the momentum of the finishing of the movie. Favorite scene for me, though, I'll go with I Don't Owe You. I think I've said this one myself on a couple of occasions as a son. But this one does hit home for me. I will raise the full monologue in quotes because I think this movie finishes on three great monologues, which I've nominated for quotes when we get there. But for me, this is a relatable scene at times. And I don't know. It's just the one that I can see myself being able to relate to Poitier's character the most in. In in a film where I probably can't relate almost at all to anything else that's going on. I love that scene. I I think that's my 
um, most indelible moment of the film. I think it takes a lot for a son to stand up to their father, especially one that they respect. And in the 1960s, they didn't have the freedom to be disrespectful to parents the way that children are now. Things have come a, a long way. And he obviously had a lot of respect and care for his parents and he didn't want to hurt their feelings. And for him to stand up to him and say, I don't owe you anything. You did what you were supposed to do as a father was huge. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but put his point across. And I thought it took a lot of guts as a son. And I thought that he put his dad in his place. And so, yeah, that was for me a big turning point. As far as indelible for me, though, I would have to agree with that. The final scene I think is the number one takeaway from this movie because it has such finality to it, not only from everything that is said in the monologue as it's delivered, but being the last screen image we have of one of the great American actors of all time. So for me, that will always be the lasting image of this movie. All right, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, before we get any further, do we have anyone to remember this week? Thankfully, we have a short list. Uh, we do have Douglas Trumbull. He was a American special effects supervisor and film director. He uh, was involved in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner. He directed the film Silent Runnings. Interestingly, Trumbull worked for a, a company called Graphic Films in Los Angeles that had done some work on a, a short film called To the Moon and Beyond uh, that was done for the 1964 World's Fair in New York. Stanley Kubrick happened to see it and thought it was good, hired the company, and then ultimately terminated the contract and moved uh, operations overseas. Trumbull, being one apparently who was one to take the bull by the horns, Cole called Kubrick and said he wanted to continue working on the project. Kubrick hired him, brought him to England, and he did a lot of the work, the production, the special effects. He helped design Hell and the look of Hal, uh, apparently. One of and the very great movie villains of all time. Yeah, and, uh, and basically using photos from uh, journals of what computers look like to design how a computer of the future would look like. So he uh, then moved on and did several other films, and obviously the next big one was Blade Runner, but then actually was able to get into some directing with Silent Running, and... Uh, was uh, very instrumental. He had a, a several uh, awards for his technical skills and uh, had a significant impact on, on special effects to this day. We remember him here with a moment of silence. Thank you. Let's move to best lines, funniest lines. Like I said before, there are really three quotes that kind of end this movie, and I nominated all three of them, but... Dad, let's let you go first. Well, my favorite line is uh, Matt Drayton, son of a bitch. Actually, that's not the line. That is, I'll be a son of a bitch. I'll be a son of a bitch. Sorry, excuse me. Ma? I love the line. Um, are we do we're doing best lines, right? Correct. Okay, so you say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what have you been doing? Yes, that is part of the larger monologue. You've said what you've had to say. You listen to me. 
You say you don't want to tell me how to live my life, so what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me? Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you were supposed to do because you brought me into this world and from that day you owed me everything that you could ever do for me, like I will owe for my son if I ever have another. But you don't own me. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I tried to explain it to the rest of your life, you will never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has laid down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back, Dad. Dad, you're my father. I'm your son. I love you. I always have and I always will. But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. Hmm. Now I've got a decision to make, and I've got to make it alone, and I've got to make it in a hurry. So would you go out there and see after my mother? Now, Mr. Prentice, clearly a most reasonable man, says he has no wish to offend me, but wants to know if I'm some sort of a nut. And Mrs. Prentice says that, like her husband, I'm a burned-out old shell of a man who can't even remember what it's like to love a woman the way her son loves my daughter. And strange as it may seem, that's the first statement made to me all day, which I'm prepared to take issue with, because I think you're wrong. You're as wrong as you can be. I admit that I hadn't considered it, hadn't even thought about it, but I know exactly how he feels about her. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that your son feels for my daughter that I didn't feel for Christina. Old, yes, burned out, certainly, but I can tell you the memories are still there. Clear, intact, indestructible, and they'll be there if I live to be 110. Where John made his mistake, I think, was in attaching so much importance to what her mother and I might think. Because in the final analysis, it doesn't matter a damn what we think. The only thing that matters is what they feel and how much they feel for each other. And if it's half of what we felt, that's everything. As you two and the problems you're going to have, they seem almost unimaginable. But you'll have no problem with me. And I think when Christina and I and your mother have some time to work on him, you'll have no problem with your father, John. But you know, I'm sure you know what you're up against. There will be a hundred million people right here in this country who will be shocked and offended and appalled. And the two of you will just have to ride that out. Maybe every day for the rest of your lives. You could try and ignore these people, or you could try and feel sorry for them, or for their prejudice and their bigotry and their blind hatred and stupid fears. But where necessary, you'll just have to cling tight to each other and say, screw all those people. Anybody could make a case, a hell of a good case, against your getting married. The arguments are so obvious that nobody has to make them. But you're two wonderful people who happen to fall in love and happen to have a pigmentation problem. I think that now, no matter what kind of case some bastard could make against your getting married, there would be only one thing worse, and that would be if, and knowing what you two have, and knowing what you two feel, you don't get married. Well, Tilly, when the hell are we going to have some dinner? 
Ma, do you have any left? Um, I think at the beginning of the film, um, Poitier turns to Joey and says, after all, a lot of people are going to think we're a shocking pair. <laughs> and that sort of sets off the film. So, The last monologue that I had down was uh, Mrs. Prentice in the, uh, well, on the terrace. What happens to men when they grow old? Why do they forget everything? I believe those two young people need each other, like they need air to breathe in. Anybody can see that by just looking at them. But you and my husband are, you might as well be blind men. You can only see that they have a problem. But do you really know what's happened to them? How they feel about each other? I believe that men grow old. And when the, when sexual things no longer matter to them, they forget it all. Forget what true passion is. If you ever felt what my son feels for your daughter, you've forgotten everything about it. My husband too. You knew once, but that was a long time ago. Now the two of you don't know. And the strange thing for your wife and me is that you don't even remember. If you did, how could you do what you are doing? Okay. If we have no more nominees, then let's go to the Stanley rubric. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You forgot the funniest lines. There are two funny lines in this film. We just treat them all the same. So you could have nominated. Well, you have it on a separate category here, so... We kind of merge the two at a certain point, especially oh, like when we're doing Oh, come on. I've been waiting all night to say this line. <laughs> all right. Fine. Go ahead. What did Tilly say? No. <laughs> this is something that John says to Monsignor Ryan. You're a pontificating old poop. <laughs> and I just love that line. It's when they're in the dressing room and he throws his sock down. Yes, I thought of my grandfather immediately upon that line. (laughs) The other one is during this whole monologue that John has at the very end of the film, Joanna starts to speak and he says, Joanna, this may be the last opportunity I have to tell you to do anything. So I tell you, shut up. (laughs) Oh, I know. That That was a line every father would love Every to say to a daughter. To a daughter. <laughs> so I, I thought both of those were really good. And I laughed at both of those lines. And I just, I just thought the pontificating old poop was a great way to describe the relationship between the Monsignor and, and Matt. So I think it's a good line for any time my grandfather quotes Fox News. Now, wait, <laughs> now, wait a minute. <laughs> I have a I have a real hankering for Oregon boysenberry at this point. <laughs> boozenberry. Um, boozenberry, yeah. Uh, if that was not one of the most memorable moments of the whole thing and the amount of times that I've experienced it but can't necessarily point out exactly where I've experienced it, whether it's you or my grandfather. I think I had ice cream here once. I can't remember what flavor. What did you have? Mm. <laughs> Let me list off like seven flavors. No, I think it was some other place. (laughs) Then why the fuck did we come here? (laughs) Like when we go to um, Leon's, right? And they always have the maple maple walnut while we were dating. (laughs) No, no, no. It wasn't maple walnut. It was always butter pecan. No, they had maple nut too, but yeah. Uh, But no, it was always butter pecan. pecan. They still always have butter pecan. Yeah, they do. They have really good butter pecan. But I I had always had a problem with butter with nut flavored ice cream. Anyway, so let's get to the Stanley rubric then. Officially this time. 
Who would like to start with Legacy? I guess I can. Dividing this into the public versus uh, the industry. I think this is held in such high esteem within the industry, the fact that it's ranked and such. That it was nominated. It's it's considered, it's been remade both as a comedy and as a drama. I, I went with a 4.5 simply because of the fact that it's still considered um, a classic and probably Poitier's, one of Poitier's great films. From the public, I think it's lost some of its luster. You know, people are familiar with it and familiar with the name and the concept. I'm not as sure that there's a large number of people who have ever seen it in the general public. So I wanted the 3.5 for that for an 8. Well, I didn't divide it or think about it or anything. I just, I have an 8. And I think the reason is it's classic. I still think I like your idea of the Romeo and Juliet. I think that it's still a classic love story, no matter how you slice it. People like those kinds of things. I think that, um, well, we'll talk about this in the rewatchability, but I think it's relatable. I think every parent can relate to this in some way, shape, or form, whether it's because of race, because of sexual orientation, because of, I mean, it's, you have, every generation has their problem with people in some types of people intermingling, right? And so, so I think that um, this is poignant for every time in history. And so I gave it an eight. I find this to be a relic movie. This was of a specific moment in time, but it's the premise that survives and lives on longer. And they've updated the premise at different times and included it in more pop culture. I think I saw it at least three different TV shows like network TV sitcoms that had applied this basic premise to an episode or another. And so that'll probably dominate how I'm depicting my scores for this particularly. But I went with a 3.5 for industry. It's a dated movie that is really only celebrated for being the last Hepburn Tracy movie or one of the great movies of Poitier. But it is this relic of the 60s that became almost outdated before it was even released. The fact that they mentioned several things that they assumed would still be in place by the time the film was released that were not because Loving had come out kind of shows where this is already slightly dated. I had a 1.5 for the audience, though, because the concept has been reused several times, like I said, in modern entertainment, most notably the movie Guess Who with Ashton Kutcher and Bernie Mac, that they at least understand the central working idea of the movie, and that credits what you said, Dad, that the premise has been reused and that people know of it. But I also doubt that a lot of people have seen this unless it was shown to them in school as a more or less relic of the civil rights era. So I ended at a five overall, and so between the three of us, that is a seven average. Impact significance? Well, just a second. I got I to gotta comment on this, a relic, okay? So to that extent, if you're going to say that it's something that's limited to the 60s, doesn't that make even Martin Luther King a relic? I mean, anything that took place in the civil rights movement of the 60s. Rosa Parks as a relic, according to your analysis. It was a touchstone. It was something that started a process. You can't isolate it within the time frame. It's something that moved forward the culture and moved forward the narrative. 
And so I, I questioned, and I'm arguing with you, and I very seldom ever do about your scoring, but a 1.5 based on being a relic, I have a question about that for the, the reason I'm arguing it. I don't see this film as a relic at all, because I think, like I said, you can move this into the next generation where we're talking about sexual orientation and uh, son or daughter. That's updating the premise. That is not necessarily okay. saying at this moment in time. We're in a completely different mode than the time and place in 1967 where we still use the term colored but as the we? primary word. I'm not sure we are. We're still having all kinds of problems with racism. Look at all of well, the police. Racism generally, yes. And how it affects and how our policies are and how we treat each other, yes. But as far as the mode of interracial marriage, which is what this is supposed to be about, I'm not sure. Now, again, if you applied it to sexual orientation, and I, I think this was one that I wrote down for a later example. If you updated and said, your daughter brought home a transgendered man or person or any of those types of things, that would fit in with where we're currently at. But this is a dated film, even if the premise is not necessarily outdated. And that's where I came in with it, because I don't think a lot of people have an appreciation for this film or go out of their way to see it because it doesn't have the same legacy or impact of something else from the same era. This is not celebrated in the way The Graduate is. This is not celebrated in the way that we get from uh, a great epic like Lawrence of Arabia. This is a movie from a place in time, and they were divided on that even at the time, which I was going to get around to here in my impact and significance, that already people were having complaints about this movie in the same way that they had complaints about when we did The Help, that this is kind of a one-of-one one situation that interracial marriage is not solved by the perfect son-in-law and the fantasy of having a doctor in your family because it's not going to be as clean cut and clear as this guy who is the epitome of son-in-laws in order to somehow break through the barrier of interracial marriage in 1960. <laughs> you're, you're limiting it too much to the marriage issue. What they used and why they went with marriage in this particular situation was not the marriage aspect. It was to put it into the most emotional thing. When your daughter is going to marry somebody interracially, they put it in that context because that's going to be the most visceral reaction you would have. It has broader context than that. It could be whether you have a black doctor or a black lawyer or anything else about professionalism, who you hire, who you associate with, who your friends are. It's a broader context than that. And again, I, I, I'm going to argue that part of this is we have two people who have lived through longer period of racial adjustment in this country than you have, and we see it differently. I'm just was trying to argue, and I, we very seldom do, but I was going to make a point of trying to argue and convince you otherwise. Well, and I will grant you that this is the biggest test of where your principles meet reality. And we see that. Is Matt a hypocrite? I mean, that literally comes up in the middle of the film. So I, I agree with you on that point of it. But I also think that you guys probably have an appreciation for this film and films like it, having grown up in some of this stuff, as opposed to the films that primarily dominate where I'm at from a cultural standpoint, 
in the year 2022 when I'm at least closer to what's defining the culture now when you guys have pretty much aged out of the demographic that defines culture. That being said, impact significance, I think this was a bigger movie in the moment than it is as a lasting impact or significance from a legacy standpoint. I went 3.5 for industry. Poitier was already a star as this was his third big film of the year. Tracy and Hepburn were stars of yesteryear, and the reviews were a bit mixed as to the importance of the movie in the civil rights or in race relations of the time, but it was a celebrated movie for awards of the time, which meant a lot more then than they are now, as we saw with the nominations for the Oscars this week. So I think that there was a somewhat celebration But to say this has like the biggest impact on the industry at the time when you're celebrating stars that are already established, I'm not sure that that's quite there. But from what I gathered, 4.5 for the audience or the public would be actually pretty good given that this actually was a big hit across the country, even in the South. And audiences seem to embrace the movie as a general feel-good pat on the back Look how far we've come movie in the moment that it happened. So I ended at an eight. Yeah, I had a nine. I think that at the time, this actually did have a lot of significance. And I still think that this film, if you modernize it or if you put it into perspective, has a lot of significance. And so um, I, I gave it a nine. Just the sheer fact that the concept was utilized in multiple sitcoms into the 70s shows that this had some poignance or impact and significance within that short or that short period. The fact that it was nominated, the fact that it was well regarded, the fact that there was a lot of props given to Stanley Kramer for trying to tackle the issue. Um, I went to 4.5 for, for industry. And again, you point out, this drew well in the South. I mean, it was almost unheard of. The idea that an interracial marriage was going to be something that would be well-received and people would go to watch in the South because, I mean, Mr. Prentice's uh, whole concept, all right, there was racism to some extent on both sides. I mean, there was a certain level of racism that existed among blacks because the perception of whites being different and whites to blacks. So please be careful with that. But Tilly is the for perfect example. Yeah. And of what you're saying. I, I understand. No, 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 no. I just want him to be careful because you start throwing out terms like reverse racism and that's lines from David Duke. Now it's, no, but she, it's not she, racism necessarily, but it's, no, but I think she points it out. She Ma, says, don't help him. Allow him the space to actually come through with the point he's trying to make. Because I don't think this has anything to do with Tilly. I think this has everything to do with Mr. Prentice. Correct. He had apprehensions about the relationship as well from his point of view as a black man. And, you know, it, it was a common thing. It was a point that was made to me while I was in high school by one of my, uh, well, one of my favorite teachers, Lloyd Price, who said, uh, or excuse me, Lloyd Page, who commented that no one has ever said or had any kind of requirements, but he said, go to any basketball game at Beloit Memorial High School, 
and the black kids sit with the black kids and the white kids sit with the white kids. He said, I would hope that we'd ever reach a position in life where there would be a mix and that there would be no common sections where the kids all sat wrong. But he said, there's a certain cultural aspect of this that we have to change because it, it, it's a comfort level that exists. And it can't just be changed by snapping your finger. And it takes time and effort and understanding and compassion and love and all of the rest of that. And I think that to some extent, that's what you're seeing. The fact that the that this would have drawn well in the South, it would have been both white people attending and black people attending and both having some understanding of the concept of a mixed marriage. It just, I think it opened some eyes and potentially had a much more significant impact in the moment. And the, again, I go back to the legacy score because I think it had more of a long range uh, legacy than what you think. So what was your score then? So I had uh, 4.5 and 4.5 for a nine. Okay. That's uh, an 8.67 between the three of us. All right, novelty then. Ma, let's start with you. I have an eight. I think there wasn't a lot put out there about anything interracial. I think that this was a good idea to try to bring people together. I thought it was new, um, a fresh idea at that point in time with what was going on in the country at that point. So I have an eight. I thought this was a subject that had never been really attacked or uh, 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 looked at, examined, attacked, whatever you want to use. I gave it a 10 because I, I thought this was completely fresh and came from something that had never been really addressed in cinema. I think, if anything, the only thing that really colored me was, and I don't mean that to be funny or anything, but was that this story, and I compared it to Romeo and Juliet earlier, is a little bit derivative in its device, but I think the premise or the concept is what's really valuable, is presenting that novel idea of your son or daughter could love somebody that you at least had some openness towards as a group when they didn't personally affect you or couldn't necessarily be part of your family going forward or wouldn't be the potential father of your grandchildren. So it's putting all of that to the test. And the novelty of this really does come from me that, well, let me put it this way. I think it's novelty to today is played out because the movie is a relic of the situation at the time. But nevertheless, if you updated it, as I mentioned before, to a transgendered person, I think the same basic concept would hold for each new generation that would need to be introduced to more understanding of another marginalized group. And for me, this means that this could be, still be novel, even though it wouldn't be this exact film or that this exact film were released today, that it would still hold up as extremely novel. But I gave it a nine. So we so have a nine, that, a ten, and an eight? Yes, that averages out to a nine. You, you didn't need help with the math? No, I could do that in my head. Because I had a good education. Classicness. Dad, you always start. Unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot here that ages well. There's a bit that doesn't age as well. I went with an eight because ultimately Spencer Tracy is the white savior who has to uh, 
agree that this is a worthwhile marriage. It would have been an interesting concept of the, uh, or you know, and maybe a more modern day would be the kids just say, go uh, fuck yourself. We're going to go ahead and get married. We don't care what mom and dad say. But to that extent, I went with an eight for that. I still don't really see him as much of a white savior. It's not so- him making inroads for black people. In this particular case, he doesn't really need to, other than to give his own acceptance. And his ability to wrestle with the issue and come to his own understanding by the end of the movie, I think is what moves him. Not necessarily that he saves them from anything or promotes them or gives them any new privileges or advantages. In fact, he even dismisses that in his portion of the movie by saying, it doesn't matter what we think, it only matters how you feel. So by that extent, I really didn't factor that into any of my scoring. I instead went with what I've been commenting on for the most part for me already is that I believe this is somewhat of a relic movie. It is a movie of its time and thus doesn't get points down for its dated language or historical references, such as the use of the word colored, which is no longer acceptable. Or did I give it any points up for being a little ahead of its time in 67, even though it kind of straddled the line a little bit with what was going on in the country? However, because this concept could be reworked or updated to fit almost any age, I'll give it an extra half point from where I normally start at my neutral seven. And so I ended a 7.5. So when I gave this film a nine, um, I love classic films. I love rewatching classic films. I just think that there is something that can be learned from all of them. And even though the time period might be a problem, as like what you said with making it a relic, I don't think that. I think that this film is still relevant. I think that people still have prejudices that we need to overcome. And I just think this is a fantastic classic film. Great acting and couldn't have been done better. So I gave it a nine. I think I still need to defend myself a little bit on my use of the term relic. I mean this more of this movie is a snapshot in time that reflected the socio-cultural moments that were going on in the country. And by that extent, because it's so rooted in exactly what was going on in that moment in time, that it reflects that. And not that we can't learn some lessons, but it kind of becomes a prisoner of the moment as opposed to something that can be extrapolated a little bit larger where it's a little bit more generic or general. But I think it just needs to be appreciated for what the moment of time was. There's probably not too many people that are coming out with new ways to outrule interracial marriage or using God's great book to somehow say that this is a sin against humankind that the blacks and the whites should ever get together. Well, I don't know. I'm still having a problem with your concept because for her to use your concept, then we should not be honoring Jackie Robinson because he's a relic of the age. I mean, we have integration, so why honor him? Did I just say that we shouldn't honor this movie? I said exactly that we should appreciate it for its moment in time. But it's hard to gauge the impact on somebody who's 31 finding out who Jackie Robinson was for the first time and his impact on baseball when you've only been experienced to most of the best players in baseball being either of Hispanic, Latin, or black origin. 
other than maybe Mike Trout. <laughs> well, I maybe I'm just offended by your word word choice of relic. <laughs> Rewatchability. <laughs> Ma? I have a seven for this. I could watch this film over and over. Um, I don't know. There's so much passion in it. I can feel it for a, from the parents' perspective. And I love Joanna's exuberance over the her finding her um, mate for life. And I see myself in that. I see my daughter in that. I, I just, I, I love the feeling I get from watching the film. So I have a seven. I really didn't have much of an emotional connection to the film. And so it doesn't really become as subjective as some other movies that are favorites of mine that we often have higher rewatchability scores in this category. So I kind of went more from an objective range. It's an easy, quick rewatch that isn't overly emotional or emotionally manipulative. It has its moments, but is a relatively easy movie to have on again and again. It plays out like a stage play. There's really nothing that is objectionable or difficult to probably watch. And it's mostly people in rooms talking to each other. So especially with its lighter tone, it's slightly optimistic and upbeat progressivism. I gave it a seven as well. Well, might as well make it the math easy. Uh, I, uh, I'll go with seven. I, seven's kind of a movie that I would put on a cycle of what I should watch every two to three years on a regular basis. And quite frankly, I'll uh, admit there are a lot of films that I want to watch again, but there's so much new stuff and there's so much stuff I haven't seen it's difficult for me to spend the time watching things on a regular basis. So I think the fact that I would like to watch it on a regular cycle says something. So I'll go with seven for that reason. And you didn't need help with the math. I did not. Okay. So let's give you the audience scores for this one. 88% for Google users, 85% for Rotten Tomato users. That comes out to an 8.75 average between those two. So we had 7 for Legacy, 8.67 for Impact Significance, a 9 for Novelty, an 8.17 for Classicness, a 7 for Rewatchability, and an 8.75 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 48.59, and that would place it directly in between It's a Wonderful Life by a hundredth of a point just underneath that one, and Sunset Boulevard. Currently, that would be number 40 on our 102 film list. Well, actually, excuse me, minus three. So 99 films, or out of 99 films, it would currently be the 40th. So remaining questions, I didn't really have any from this movie. I thought it did a good job of pretty much wrapping in everybody's character arc and what everybody was thinking, other than the basic question of, you know, what if you were to do a sequel to this? what happens to John and Joey and what is their life together. But I don't think that's as important as whether or not they had the support and love of their families, which the movie ends on. I had a concept that just kind of thunderstruck me, which is a sequel that would be filmed in today or within the last, you know, the last 10 years that was called who came after dinner. And uh, it would be basically the story of their lives and their struggles 
in dealing with the racism and prejudice that existed throughout their lives. And the story concept would be Portier or within Drayton or within uh, Prentice's death and she reliving their lives as part of the wake where she's sitting around with the family and her friends discussing what their lives were like. I think it would be a potential expose of race relations in this country and could be done in a way that would be an expose. However, your title isn't very good. I would actually propose just desserts. Okay. Because that works in a multitude of ways. But anyway, mom, any remaining questions? No, I think the film did a really good job too of wrapping everything up. And, um, but my whole thing was, I would have liked to have seen, you know, what happened. Everybody was anticipating all of these big problems what really happened. And of course we lived during that time period and I would have liked to have seen the spin on all of that now. Sure. And again, I think this is a concept that could be updated or reused multiple times over and you just write in whatever the pressing issue or unacceptable group or new group we need to have some understanding towards that uh, we're just bridging the gap on uh, would be, I think about 15 years ago, it would probably just be homosexuals. And, you know, dealing with the marriage issue, that was a big thing at the time. But now that we've seemingly at least tackled that issue in this country and we've kind of moved past it, I think it is probably the transgendered group at this point in time. That being said, I'll open one thing up and one character I just purely didn't understand. And it's probably because I've never experienced a character like that. And it is most likely somebody that did exist at that time and place. But I didn't understand Tilly at all. Her entire motivation is, I don't want to see some uppity member of my race getting too high above his class. I think that's the paraphrased quote. But she lived during the time period before that, where they weren't thought to be the same class of citizens. You know, where they came from, beings always being servants, and you never crossed that line. And she was still having problems with the race the equality of races herself. Sure. And I can buy all of that. And like I said, it's probably a person that did exist at the time, but it's not one that I've experienced in any capacity or has been a character that's popped up in any movie from the past, maybe 30 years. So it's just a little harder for me to draw a connection in the same way. I mean, obviously she served as the nanny, not just the cook for the house. So she raised the daughter. Like she commented about that, that she helped raise the daughter. Yeah. So, and she had been with the family all those years. And so she was a piece of the family. And Matt does call her a member of the family for whatever number of years as he begins his monologue at the end. I'm just saying that by a comparison, the only other like helpers that we get are from movies like the Butler from the White House staff, or from The Help, which we also discussed. And these are much more supportive, uh, oh, bless you, child, type of support staff, as opposed to Tilly, who's trying to challenge the conventions alternatively by trying to keep them in place. Let me use an example. Jack Canfield, who's a success coach. The writer of Chicken Soup for the Soul, yes. Yes. Um, He tells a story about how in a circus, when they had, when they still had elephants in circuses, 
um, when a baby elephant was born, they put a chain around the elephant's foot. When and, they still had circuses. Yes, and put the uh, the chain with a stake. And the, the elephant uh, got used to knowing that how far the elephant could travel outside Rome from the stake. Well, as the elephant got older, they would cut that bracelet off as the, the, the feet grow, it wouldn't fit. But the elephant was trained to fit within that circle and the elephant would never leave that circumference of where it had been taught that the chain allowed them to go. And I think Tilly is a reflection of what society allowed and what they accepted at that time. And it's a very complicated character. And I think it's a microcosm of a large portion of the older black culture of the 60s. Be careful of projecting the sociology of black people during the 60s when that's not your background or understanding. I understand. I'm just trying to to show what you're saying. It's something that was alluded to during John's speech to his father. You and the rest of your generation think that it always has to be the way you had it. I think that would be the, the point to draw upon. But I still think that that character, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to make a ton of sense to me as to what her prerogatives are. And that you'd think that, especially with the characters we've had the examples of in a modern sense, that that would be a much more supportive character for the daughter as opposed to, it, it's almost kind of like Catherine Hepburn took the role that we've now placed on the black helpers as opposed to, and then she took the role of what the mothers often did in these situations. And so maybe that's a weird role reversal in a, in a way that you don't see in a modern depiction. But I just say that for my own benefit because it's a character I, I didn't quite grasp. I think everybody else's motivations were much more clearly drawn. Anyway, so final thoughts for the week. Ma, since you were the guest, we'll let you start. Well, thank you very much for um, allowing me to join you again. I really enjoyed watching the film and I enjoyed being as a guest again this week and um, reviewing the films. It was a great, a great time. Well, and I would encourage you to watch next week's film, if only for the fact that we want your one, two or zero thumbs review of Friday. (laughs) For those of you that are not aware, we've had a family joke going for years that if a comedy gets two thumbs down from my mother, then it is automatically of great quality and revered among (laughs) legacy comedies. Yeah, I tend to be a little serious. (laughs) Yes. I will often remember walking out of Dodgeball and she going, that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And just absolutely deadpanning and hating it. And we turned to each other. And said, two thumbs up. (laughs) And now I like the film, but I did not like it when I first saw it, no. But thank you for being on, and we do appreciate having you as the record-setting guest on the show. Dad, final thoughts? No, um, we're in that that 100 group, and we just keep plugging forward. And um, it, uh, in my busy life, this is at least something that I do that's not necessarily because I have to or because of responsibilities, 
it's something I do for myself, and uh, it's kind of nice. It's one of the few things I kind of enjoyed doing, and um, I hope other people enjoy it and, and understand or appreciate um, that we're doing this out of love of movies and, um, you know, and that they appreciate the fact that we're trying to present stuff and open their eyes to potential things that they could watch or uh, enjoy if they haven't uh, seen the films already. And congratulations, guys, on your over 100th episode now. I'm really proud of both of you. Yeah, this is number 102, and I'm very much looking forward to next week's movie because it's a movie that I think if you're part of the black community that you know about, and it's kind of a celebrated movie within that, I've heard a lot of athletes talk about the movie particularly, and so that's usually how I've had my end to it. But it's a movie that I've never actually sat down and tried to watch, so now having to do it for the show... I think it was a good excuse to try and finally get to the movie. Plus, also gives me the chance to revel in the fact that you have to watch a Chris Tucker movie. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will cover probably the most celebrated black comedy movie that I'm aware of that doesn't have Eddie Murphy for our continuing Black History Month recognition. Friday, from 1995, directed by F. Gary Gray, Written by Ice Cube and DJ Pooh, starring Ice Cube, Chris Tucker, and John Witherspoon. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.